Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. Galatians chapter 1. Let's uh, pray and then we'll read a few verses from Galatians 1. Our Father, we thank you for another Lord's Day. We thank you that you have given us life and breath and that we um, know your mercies new this morning as we did yesterday and all the previous days. Father, we pray that you would uh, bless us, that you would guide us, that you would feed us on your word, that you would build us up and conform us to your son. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, Galatians chapter 1, we'll read the first few verses, first five, and look at those. So this is the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle, not sent from man nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. So, Paul, we went through the first verse last time and looked at the Apostle Paul, this man that was a Pharisee, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, he uh, was making great progress in the Jewish faith, and then God converted him, changed him in a moment, Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus, and he went from a violent persecutor of the church to, uh, to someone sent out by Jesus himself to preach Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. So a complete 180 degree uh, turn by the Apostle uh, Paul. And so now we, uh, we carry on from there and we can't forget, we just can't forget who Paul was. We can't forget that he was a Pharisee. And Pharisaical religion is religion that is based upon works, right? It is based upon, their, their view of righteousness is that righteousness is based upon the keeping of the law, especially those ceremonial aspects of the law. They uh, base their religion on that. They boast in the fact that they tithe dill and cumin right down to the very... Um, smallest of spices they're tithing. And so that's the sect that Paul was a part of and was flourishing in, was growing greatly in. And then God said, no, you're a chosen instrument of mine. You no longer get to do the will of Satan, which is Pharisaical religion. You are going to do my will and preach the gospel of grace. So, Verse 2, it's not just Paul who's writing here, although it is just Paul, 
but he, he makes sure to mention that it's not just himself writing. And the reason he does that is he, he wants the Galatian churches, remember this is an early letter of the Apostle Paul, and he wants the Galatian churches to uh, realize that this is not just Paul going off on a tangent on his own. That it's me and the brethren who are with me. It's all of those who are professing uh, Jesus Christ. And so, um, in other books, he names other men who are writing the actual letter with him, right? And uh, we, could go to, um, <clears throat> we could go to Colossians, and he mentions Timothy, uh, Paul and Timothy writing that letter. And then we could go to Thessalonians, and he mentions uh, Silvanus and Timothy that are writing the letter along with him. Here, he just mentions brethren. Others who are with him. And so um, they, he wants to be sure that the Galatians know that this is not just Paul doing his own thing. He's writing to the churches, notice, of Galatia. It's not one church. It's a group of churches. Ecclesiae would be the, the Greek here. It's the churches of that region that make that up. And of course... He's not just writing to the churches of Galatia, he's writing to the churches of all time, right? This is the inspired word of God, and so this is as much to us as it was to those churches in Galatia. God knew about Trinity Presbyterian Church in the year 2023 when the Holy Spirit inspired this letter, and so here it is for us to learn from and to um, submit to. And so the churches of Galatia, and then we get to, so that's the salutation proper. Paul, an apostle, he defends his apostleship, we went through that last time, and the brethren, we're writing this, and it's going out to the churches in Galatia. And then, again, this, this greeting, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, and I want to um, just sink in a little bit on those words, grace and peace. He's mentioned these at the outset. Galatians does not have a lot of introductory encouragement, but it doesn't lack it either. It's just brief here right at the beginning, and the Apostle Paul is wont to do this in most of his letters, right? Grace, peace, and mercy to you in the Lord Jesus Christ, he'll say. Here he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so already in this, in this introduction, he's getting to the point of the whole book. The first word is grace. And that's key. That will be key throughout this whole book is grace. Right, and so what is grace? What is grace? Somebody want to give a stab at grace? Probably you, you have um, a definition you've packed away and keep in your pocket for a word that's so frequently stated in the New Testament. What is grace? Okay. All right. Yep, I've heard that one. 
Let's dig a little deeper than that. Yep. Robbie. Okay. Yes, that's helpful. Sandy? Okay. All right. All right. David? Okay, it's unmerited favor. Let's call it that. Unmerited favor. Normally, things work sort of quid pro quo, this for that, right? Normally, you gain favor by supplying something that satisfies the one who you know, is receiving it. And so, uh, but this kind, but, but grace is getting somebody's favor without supplying them a single thing. It's not quid pro quo. It's quid. It's this that God gives you, right? It's unmerited. If something's unmerited, you haven't earned it. You haven't done anything to deserve it. You haven't, um, you haven't run the marathon and then received the prize at the end, right? Um, after you run faster than everybody else. No, this is unmerited favor. This is God turning his favor towards you without you having done anything. And that is what the believer receives in Jesus Christ by faith. The unmerited favor of God. Nothing you've done. Not, not how you've been born or where you've been born or what, what size your muscles are or what your intellect does or how you've been educated. None of that. What work you've done, how much you know, income your estates, anything like that, your attractiveness, none of that counts. But it is God showing you favor in His Son, in Jesus Christ. It speaks to the Father's kindness, doesn't it? It speaks to the incredible kindness, the incredible mercy, the incredible love that God has towards sinners. Because sinners are not just sick in their sin, they're dead in their sin, right? Dead in their sins. And so even if God put up some sort of standard that we had to meet before we got invited into the kingdom of God, we wouldn't be able to fulfill it because we'd be dead. And dead people do nothing. They don't do anything. And so, grace must be grace, and salvation must be by grace, or there is no salvation at all, being dead, right? Man being dead. So that's the word he leads with, and that will be the theme of the whole book, right? The whole book of Galatians is trying to answer the question of how does the law relate to justification? How does the law of God relate to our justification? Right? And justification is what? Justification is God declaring wicked sinners righteous in his son. 
right? And so, um, so that, that will be coming back again and again and again to that, that topic. How does the law and the keeping of the law, and specifically the keeping of the ceremonial law, but the whole law also, how does that relate to being justified in Christ, being not guilty before God? Okay, so that's grace, and then he speaks of peace. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Peace speaks to the new relationship that Christians have with God after their justification. There is now peace. Peace between you and the almighty holy God, the thrice holy, holy, holy God. And you the sinner. Um, in Jesus Christ, by faith, there is now peace between the God who is angry at sin every day and you who sins every day. Peace. But it speaks beyond that. Peace with our, between, you know, it's, there's peace. When we're in Christ, there's peace with, in our relationship with God, but also with others. Right? Apostle Paul talks about the, the um, dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile being broken down. So the gospel brings peace between people, peace between um, nations, peace between brothers and sisters who do, have nothing in common and were perhaps enemies before they knew Jesus Christ. And then there's peace not only with God and with others, but there's peace within our own hearts. The peace that surpasses understanding, that guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. There's, there's inward peace, right, in our own hearts. And so no longer is there um, anxiety, no longer is there a, a, a hating and a hostility toward God, but there's a peace even in our own hearts toward God, even as there's peace in Him toward us. There's peace in our hearts toward him and toward others. Notice that it says grace and peace are from the Father and Jesus Christ. Okay? Several times in this opening, he puts the Father and Jesus Christ next to one another. And I want to read a brief passage from Luther's commentary on Galatians. And he says this. Why, he just asks this simple question, why does the apostle add moreover in this salutation and from our Lord Jesus Christ? So he's looking at verse 3. And why, why not just say peace from God the Father? Why say peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ? He says, was it not, not enough to say and from God our Father? Why then doth he couple Jesus Christ with the Father? You have oftentimes heard of us how it is a rule and principle in the Scriptures, diligently to be marked, that we abstain from the curious searching of God's majesty, who is intolerable to man's body, and much more to his mind. No man, saith the Lord, shall see me and live. The Pope, the Turks, the Jews... 
and all such as trust in their own merits, regard not this rule. And therefore, removing the mediator, Christ, out of their sight, they speak only of God, and before him only they pray and do all that they do. So Roman Catholics, Muslims, Jews, all they ever mention is God. And he's like, not the Christian. It's God and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. As for example, the monk imagines thus, these works which I do please God. God will regard these my vows and for them will save me. The Turk saith, if I keep the things which are commanded in the Koran, God will accept me and give me everlasting life. The Jew thinks thus, if I keep these things which the law commands, I shall find God merciful to me and so I shall be saved. So also a sort of fond heads at this day, bragging of the spirit of revelations, of visions, and such other monstrous matters, I what not what, do walk in wonders above their reaches. These new monks have invented a new cross and new works, and they dream that by doing them, they please God. To be brief, as many as know not the article of justification... Take away Christ the mercy seat, and will needs comprehend God and his majesty by the judgment of reason and pacify him with their own works. But true Christian divinity, as I give you often warning, sets not God forth unto us in his majesty as Moses and other doctrines do, but commands us not to search out the nature of God, but to know his will set out to us in Christ." Whom he, would have, uh, whom he would have to take our flesh upon him, to be born and to die for our sins, and that this should be preached among all nations. For seeing the world by wisdom knew not God and the wisdom of God, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Wherefore, when your conscience stands in conflict, wrestling against the law, sin, and death in the presence of God, there is nothing more dangerous than to wander with curious speculations in heaven and there to search out God, and he's talking about the Father, in his incomprehensible power, wisdom, and majesty, how he created the world and how he governs it. If you seek thus to comprehend God and would pacify him without Christ the mediator, making your works a means between him and yourself, it cannot be but that you must fall as Lucifer did and in horrible despair lose God and everything altogether. For as God is in his own nature unmeasurable, incomprehensible, and infinite, so is he to man's nature intolerable. So what he's getting at, I'm sure you pick it up, but what he's getting at is so many people think that they comprehend God by looking directly to the incomprehensible, invisible God the Father. And yet, we only know the Father through the Son, right? And so we look to the Son to understand God in his fullness, right? And so that's why, even here, he smashes together the Father and the Son, which he is, does all over the place in his epistles, right? He's always mentioning together the Father and the Son. And so 
found that that was, was helpful from Luther in there. Any questions or thoughts at this point? Yeah, I mean, adherence to the law was their righteousness, the keeping of the law. They made laws around the law so that they could keep the law, right? They made, uh, they added to the law thinking that that helped them to keep God's law, which is just foolishness because when you add to God's law, all you end up doing is breaking God's law. And so, but, but yes, they sought their righteousness through um, the law, at, at least the Pharisaical sect did. There were faithful Christian Jews in the Old Testament who understood that they needed to live by faith, like Abraham, like David, and they did not get wrapped up in uh, thinking justification came by law. Verse 4, then, let's keep going. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, comma, who gave himself. Okay, so he's now in this, in this next phrase, in this verse, he's going to be defining who is Jesus Christ. Okay, and what has Jesus Christ done? So verse 4 is a summary of the gospel. Very concise summary of the gospel. Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Okay? So that's a great summary. What doctrines are compacted into this dense little verse? Where do you see justification? The declaration that God has made that we are not guilty before God. It's, it's in there, but I would say that that speaks more closely to another aspect of Christ's work. Uh, sanctification, rescuing us out of the present evil age, sort of, doesn't speak to our innate holiness. Being a stickler, I know. Substitutionary atonement, there's the first one. Okay, He gave himself for our sins. He did something because of what we were. What was that? Well, <laughs> he gave himself for our sins. Later in Galatians, the Apostle Paul writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. In other words, he became sin. He took our place. He became sinners. He became your sin, right? He became the most sinful man who ever lived. And God cursed him on the cross, right? He was cursed by hanging on that tree, and he bore the wrath of God in our place, right? He gave himself for us. And so substitutionary atonement is the first thing here. Um, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. That's 3.13. Now keep in mind that he's not just arbitrarily mentioning doctrines, right, here. 
He is setting up a contrast already. He's working to set up a contrast with the false teaching that is um, derailing the Galatian church, right? These Judaizers, these guys who come in and say that, um, that you must keep the law in order to be saved. And he's, he's already setting up a contrast there. He's going to pound on the relationship between law and justification. He's pointing, therefore, toward the merit of Jesus Christ. Right? Away from the merit of man, he's pointing toward the merit of Jesus Christ, the works of Christ, all that he did. And taking the, taking the power which doesn't really exist, away from the works of man. And so he's building up what Christ did, the merit that, that Christ earned. Um, and so he's already pointing to the merit and work of Jesus Christ as that which justified, and he's getting to work denouncing a view that was being pushed in the church that in order to be justified, Gentile believers must keep the law of Moses. The law was never meant to save, right? Well, we, we'll get there a little bit, yeah. We just handled the first phrase. Now we, we can get to that. Um, Jesus, okay, so Jesus was a substitutionary atonement. That means he stood in your place, right? He took, he took the punishment for your sins, um, but Jesus also came on a rescue mission. His work was to rescue fallen mankind. He came on a rescue mission. It says he might rescue us from the present evil age. Now, a savior doesn't, a, a savior, a, um, a SEALs team doesn't, doesn't go on a mission to save those who can save themselves, right? Why would you send anybody into danger when the people you're trying to save could just save themselves? That, that'd be stupid tactics, right? You would just give them a call and say, hey, save yourselves. <laughs> no, we couldn't save ourselves, and he came to rescue us out of the present evil age. And... And so one goes on, and you go on a rescue mission to save those who are helpless, and such is what we are in our sins, dead and helpless. We are dead in our sin, sins and trespasses. And, and this verse shows us that it's God's will, get this, that we no longer live in our filth and uncleanness, but to be delivered from it. That's the will of God. That's what's meant by this present evil age. It's like a way of saying that all of mankind in all time is fallen and wicked and unclean. And God comes and, and rescues his elect from that because he desires that they not be, he desires them to be clean. He desires them to, to be removed from the filth of this world. That's the rescue mission. Right, and so I, I think by saying present evil age, it's just a way of comprehending the, 
the filth and uncleanness of the world outside of Jesus Christ. And so um, Calvin says, Woe to all who in their blindness think great things of their own free will or power or wisdom or this or that. How self-satisfied are we even when we realize that we are full of corruption within and so much filth that we are to be pitied? Right? But then God pities us and sends his son on this glorious rescue mission. He came for you. Right? He came to draw you out of this filthy world. He came for you, each one of you he came for. He knows you. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows you intimately. He has known you before the foundation of the world. He has, he has known his elect before there were people. And he knows the anxiety and the tension and the weight of living in a fallen world and the weight of living with a corrupt nature. And he has come to rescue you from all of that. And so, so those two things, the substitutionary atonement and this, this view of God rescuing being on a rescue mission, the son being sent on a mission from his father um, to remove us from this present evil age. And then the last, last phrase of verse 4 says, according to the will of our God and Father. And so, why would he mention Jesus gave himself for our sins and rescued us, you know, came to rescue us, and then why would he tack on according to the will of our God and Father? According to the will of God, our God and Father. Well, um, Paul's got a one-track mind. Okay, This whole letter is written about um, justification. And he's still pounding on the view already in verse 4 that one must keep the law to be justified. And so he mentions that all the work of Christ done on our behalf was according to the will of our God and Father. That's what caused and motivated that work, the will of God. It wasn't something that God foresaw in us through the, you know, through the ages that we would do something that was truly a good work and then he would then apply the redemption and election of, to us? No. It wasn't because he's watching us now and he sees that that was a genuine thing you've done. I guess I owe you. Now, John 1, 12 through 13, we've been, we've been through this before. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Right? He's trying to build up this case that it is God alone and his will that leads to our justification. There's no way to impress God with your sinful works. And so he died as our substitute, he came to rescue us, and he did it all because God willed it, not because we willed it, 
because dead people can't will anything. So he's getting to work pounding home the fact that salvation is by grace and not some work of man. Verse 5. The great end or goal of everything is written about here. Verse 5, to whom be the glory forever, amen. Right? That's describing the Father. The Father gets all the glory. Right? The Father, all history is working toward the Father receiving the glory that's due his name. Right? Not that he has earned. He has earned it simply by virtue of being as he is, which is perfect in all of his attributes. Um, And so... All of this, all of this, all of your life, all of history, the fall, sin coming into the world, redemption, his son redeeming sinners, unrepentant sinners being cast in hell eternally, all of that is working that God's glory might be maximized. It's his will to bring glory to himself. Ephesians 1 speaks of this, doesn't it? I mean, that one big, long first sentence of of Ephesians 1, uh, starting at verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him, In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention which he purposed in him with a view to administration suitable to the fullness of the times that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose which works all things after the counsel of his will to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory in him. You also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. All of that, to the, all of that glorious stuff, all of that redemptive, transformative work, All those blessings, all to the praise of his glory. You know, your redemption and your salvation, in a sense, is just not about you. It's about something, someone, far more glorious than yourself. Your glory is only residue of God's glory anyway. Whatever glory you have is what has, he has shared with you. And so all things are working toward God's glory. I mean, that really is our view of history. That is our view of knowledge. That's our view of, of the future. 
right? We don't have to get caught up in some eschatological scheme other than the fact that it's all working to God's glory. And at the very end, amazingly, we read in 1 Corinthians 15 about this glory. It's a glory so comprehensive and so settled on the Father that the Son is said to submit to it. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 says this, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. For since, a man came, for since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ's at his coming... Then comes the end when he hands over, when Jesus hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, to his Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. The glory of the Father. The glory of the Father. When all has been ordered, when all, has, all the enemies have been done away with, when all the nations submit, when all the death is done and and. and it's over. Jesus hands his kingdom to the Father and subjects himself to the Father. It makes your mind boggle. They're equal in power and glory. They are two persons of the, the, the Trinity. And yet here's the scripture that talks about even the Son living to bring glory to the Father and submitting to the Father. And so all of that back in Galatians is wrapped up in this, these little four verses. We've gotten the whole gospel, but he's, he's already starting to pound on this, this idea that the Judaizers have come in with a false gospel, and they're saying, yeah, no, um, wash your hands before you eat. Be circumcised. You'll be in. Don't eat pork. I mean, it's so, it's so outlandish when we think about it, but then we go around hanging our heads because we don't have any assurance of our salvation, right? And when you don't have assurance of our salvation, what is the doctrine you're forgetting about? You're forgetting about your justification not coming by your works, you're thinking of your justification as being tied to your, your, your works. It's not. Fruit flows from faith, yes. I'll maintain that every day. There is justification always produces fruit. But the basis of your salvation, the declaration that you are good and righteous in God, comes by faith in Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ has done all the work. And so, and, 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 and 
All of this, all of this is working to the glory of the Father. The great end or goal of everything is the Father receiving glory forevermore. All the work of Jesus Christ which happened according to the will of the Father is not for the ultimate purpose of bringing glory to man's will or choice or work or strength. It is to bring glory to his Father. That's what he wants to do. You're just a little, little, little tiny cog in this wheel, right? But what glorious benefits do you receive to be able to eternally enjoy the glory of God? So he's arguing the gospel through all of this. It's not just a salutation, right? He's setting them up. Um, One of the commentators I was reading said um, he's so eager to defend the gospel that he's arguing on the envelope, right? This is the envelope of the letter. This is a salutation. It's the introduction. It's like, I'm writing to you guys, and we're writing to you, and bam, he's just like right into it. And so Paul knew the dangers of works righteousness, didn't he? He knew the seductive dangers of works righteousness. Pharisaical religion is a temptation to all of us. And pharisaical religion works like this. Let's make laws that we can keep. And then let's base our righteousness on keeping those little laws. It's not the big laws, right? It's the little laws. Let's make little laws that are keepable. You know, like, what's an example of this? Well, um, not eating gluten is easy to do. Simple, right? It's very simple to do. And, um, I mean, food factors into this whole, this whole debate. But not eating gluten is very easy to do when you consider the fact that the law says don't commit adultery. And don't envy. And don't covet. And don't bear false witness. Right? All things that none of us have kept, and nor could we, right? We're all guilty of that. But the, the moment, you know, the, hand, the don't eat, don't taste, don't touch sort of righteousness comes into play, well, we want something handleable that we can keep so that we can tie our righteousness to what we do, what we can touch and feel. Okay, and look, if if you're gluten intolerant, go for it. I, I, that's not what I'm saying. I don't I don't care. But there are people who base their righteousness on the things they eat. That's how stupid we are. Okay, that is how stupid we are. We divide over food, and it's about righteousness and unrighteousness. It's not about health, and it's about righteousness. And so, um, this, we need to hear this. You know, what other things would it be? What are all those little things that make you distinct from somebody else that you really take pride in? Well, that's your righteousness. That's the righteousness you're trying to build up. Right? Paul knew the dangers of this. He had lived this life. He knew it intimately. He knew how he was a deceived man. He knew how... 
his pursuing works diminished God and his law and elevated man. And he's disgusted by it now as he sees it ravaging another church. Right? He knew it to be a false gospel. There was no reconciling, after you work through the book of Galatians, there's no reconciling works righteousness and the doctrines of grace. They can't be reconciled. There's no bringing together Pharisaism and Christianity. Philippians 3, 5-6, right? Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, of a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. This guy would have had some street cred in the church, right? We would have looked at him and we would have said, that's a godly guy. He doesn't keep very... I've never seen him break any of the commandments of God. We would be impressed by the righteousness of the Apostle Paul. We We would be blown away by it. The scrupulousness with which he led his life, we would have been blown away by it. We would have... We would have thought, man, what a righteous man. And what does he say about that righteousness? Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ, but more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish that I may gain Christ and may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. That's what he says, all of that. All of that impressive stuff, rubbish, that I might just live by faith in Christ. But we're all Pharisees, man. Faith is not enough for us. Oh, man, faith just levels everything for everybody, and it's terrible because that filthy sinner who sinned more than me is saved by faith too. But he should clean up his act. He ought to clean up his act and then become a Christian, right? That's exactly what the Judaizers are saying. You Gentiles need to clean up your act and then you can believe in Christ. Oh, we do that all the time, brothers and sisters. He struggles against works righteousness with all his strength, as we see later in this work. As zealous as he was in persecuting the church, he is now zealous to exclude works and promote grace. Now, um, i got to stop. It's time. <laughs> I could keep going for probably another 10 minutes um, on what I have here, but we got to stop. Quick questions or comments? And perfectly clear. Wonderful. All right, let's pray. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Oh, Lord, thank you that you have provided everything we need to be saved. 
Thank you for the provision of your son. Thank you that he did not regard equality with you something to be argued. But he emptied himself, took on the form of a slave, and went on a rescue mission and has brought us out of this evil age. Thank you, Father. Be with us as we worship you. Hear our prayers, sit enthroned on the praises of your people. Feed us through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.